Choir directors are creative, resourceful, dedicated, and sometimes completely out of ideas. Not to worry, the Choir Ninja Podcast is here with solutions you never saw coming. Get ready for some training, wisdom, and inspiration from the masters. Let Ryan Guth guide your journey to becoming a Choir Ninja. best part about being a ninja? The gear. It's the nunchucks, the katanas, the throwing stars. It's the same for choir ninjas. The difference between an ordinary and a masterful performance may come down to your most basic and essential piece of equipment, your music folder. My Music Folders creates a superior product, and they do it with a smile. And because they are friends of the podcast, they have a killer deal for you right now. Get the bulk purchase price break without having to buy in bulk. So whether you have to restock your entire classroom or you just need to replace a few folders, you will get the best possible pricing on the best possible product. So like a ninja, sneak on over to MyMusicFolders.com and use the code NINJA when you check out. Today's episode is brought to you by SightReadingFactory.com. Do you hate teaching sight singing? Do you have a carbon footprint the size of Sasquatch because you run off endless sheets of sight singing examples only to hear your students groan in agony when it's time to sight sing in rehearsal? SightReadingFactory.com is a web-based tool that will compose custom sight reading examples based on specifications that you choose. Your choir will actually enjoy sight singing and so will you. Plus, you will get back hours of your life and finally feel like the choir ninja you were destined to be. If that isn't cool enough, you can add student accounts that link directly to your teacher dashboard so your kids can practice or even take recorded assessments from home. As a sponsor of this show, SightReadingFactory.com has an exclusive deal just for you, Choir Nation. When you purchase their insanely affordable one-year subscription, you will unlock 10 free student accounts just for using the promo code NINJA at checkout. That's Ninja, N-I-N-J-A. So head over to SightReadingFactory.com. That's SightReadingFactory.com. And don't forget to use the promo code Ninja at checkout to unlock your 10 student accounts absolutely free. Hey there, Choir Nation. This is Ryan Guth with the Choir Ninja Podcast. And today I'm going to be bringing you a special live interview with James Mulholland of Butler University. Uh, also a quite famous choral composer with over 600 works in his catalog. But you may know his most famous, Robert Burns setting, A Red Red Rose, which is, I know, one that I hold very near and dear to my heart. So this interview took place at NMSU, New Mexico State University, on the invitation of Dr. John Flannery, their director of choral activities, who I must give a big shout out to and a big thank you to uh, for helping me set up this interview. I originally did this interview at the ACDA National Convention, and unfortunately, in travel, my SD card snapped in half, and I had to travel to NMSU to redo this interview, but everything happens for a reason. I think that this interview turned out better than the first, and I got to enjoy a wonderful concert of uh, a bunch of James Mulholland's works put on by the different choirs at NMSU directly after this interview. In this interview, we get into Professor Mulholland's relationship with his father, uh, 
to poetry, his relationship with Robert Shaw as a singer, uh, his parting ways with Robert Shaw, uh, his relationship with uh, Butler University and his longtime career there, and so many more wonderful things. It's a very inspiring interview to listen to, and I really hope you enjoy it. As I understand it, um, Professor Mulholland, you've been in residence here for the last week. Yes, I have, and it's been wonderful. So what is happening here uh, at NMSU today? Well, today is another performance of just my music. Only your music? Only my music. I asked John to, to pass out some sort of roll-aids or something at intermission to keep people stomachs settled. <laughs> but anyway, and we had a performance last night. Okay. And, uh, and is, was there a commission involved? Yes. I, John commissioned me to do a piece for his choir as well, and it is having a premiere this weekend. And I, he asked me to choose the text, and the text... I made up myself. The text is one word, love, in 25 languages. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm looking forward to this. I'm looking forward to this. Will this be available for, for oh, um, yeah. publication? It's, at some it's point? already available. Oh, wonderful. So he has it in his hands, and they performed it last night and got a standing ovation. Great. So. Oh, that's wonderful. So that's great. And, I, and thank you again to, Jane, uh, to John Flannery um, for, for having uh, Professor Mulholland here at NMSU. And I happen to be living in Albuquerque, so I was just a few hours away from, from driving, so I figured I would come down. Now, I have to tell Choir Nation that the very first episode that I did with Professor Mulholland was on an SD card that got destroyed between Minneapolis, ACDA, and here. So this is take two, because uh, this, this is the only one I'm going to have, unfortunately. But um, so I, I want to I go back, because you know, when we spoke before, uh, we had spoken a little, little bit about biographical stuff. And you were telling me about the fact that your father was some, a lover of poetry. Oh, yes. My father was not only a lover of poetry, he used it as his alter ego. He was from, or his parents were from Ireland, and uh, they were coming up the Mississippi and that stop in the uh, Mississippi and for him to be born. And he brought over oh, many books, and his entire life he just read. I sat at his feet from the time I can remember having him quote these poems from memory long before I had any idea what he was saying. But he was this big, burly Irishman. I never saw him cry during his life. But when he was citing poetry, I would see tears well up in his eyes. And I said to myself, before I knew what was going on, I don't know where my father is, but wherever it is, I would love to go there because it must be some place very special. What did your father do? Well, my father uh, owned two or three businesses. He owned a cafe, 
He owned what down south they called a laundromat, and he also owned a couple of barbershops. And uh, what he did was just go sit around and read. And uh, he was a fighter before my mother married him, and she would not marry him until he gave up fighting. He was a fighter, like a oh, boxer? Yes, sir. Oh. This, is like the, this is one of the people that you would never expect that would sit down and uh, read poetry, right? Uh, no, absolutely. But uh, he had was gifted with this fantastic uh, photographic memory. He could literally read pages to you and then recite them back. He was, uh, he was envied by everyone and very intimidating, I might add. You could not get away with a thing because you did not say that. You said this, and it would be quoted back to you verbatim. <laughs> and this was back in, in Laurel, Mississippi. Yes, a wonderful little town where the great artist and a dear friend of mine, well, the greatest artist of this century, Leontine Price, was born. The soprano. Soprano. Oh. Now, is it just, just you and Leontine that have come from Laurel that you know of as far well, as the music yes, world is concerned? we were in a little uh, covey of uh, Mississippi where, uh, oh, Tennessee Williams uh, visited often. William Faulkner okay. uh, made his residence in Oxford. In fact, I'm envied because as a boy of 17, uh, I sat at the table with my father, Tennessee Williams, William Faulkner, and Truman Compote. How did you get that opportunity? Well, because of my father's, uh, should I say, influence. And uh, they all met in New Orleans once, once a year, Capote, Faulkner in particular, Tennessee wow. Williams, to have their own little mutual admiration society. And so I was privileged... Uh, Truman Capote wasn't even on the map yet, and no one knew who he was. He was, oh, maybe 30, 35. Mm -hmm. uh, Tennessee Williams was around 45, and Faulkner was, oh, I would say close to 60. Okay. But uh, I didn't realize what I had, you know, being 17, 18. And we never knew. You take the mountains for granted. Absolutely. Well, let's go back a little bit and talk about your introduction to composition. How did that start? Uh, my mother was a pianist and a school teacher. And uh, I guess to babysit me, anytime she played at the piano, it just drew me in. I went and pounded on the top of the piano while she was playing beautifully at the bottom. And finally, I started trying to make Mine sound compatible to hers. And I had an aunt that taught piano. Mother wouldn't teach me. Well, did mom I, not teach you because you well, can't teach she, your kids? Uh, yes. Uh-huh, okay. And uh, so I started studying, and uh, I think you asked me before, and it's the first time I ever thought of that and said it. And I remember it now because you said it meant so much to you. You asked me when I first 
started loving music. I did. And the first time, it's not a stock answer. I said, that would be asking me, when did you first start loving your mother? <laughs> I, I don't. It, it's just there. That's a hard one. That's a hard one. We have had some people answer that question with a with a like a light bulb moment, but it's, there's not a light bulb for no, everybody. No, I don't do light bulbs. I'm spur of the moment. I have no uh, script in my head. I don't say the same things the same way twice. I'm more verbal than that, and I'm my father's son. Well, and it sounds like that's a that's a quality that is that has suited you well for your 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 entire career. Now, I I, I hear you're going into your fifty fourth year at Butler. Yes. So Butler University, that's Indianapolis, Indiana. Yes. Okay. Fifty four years in the same institution. Now, what 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 about Butler? What made you want to stay there for so long? Well, I decided that I was not going to perform or sing for a living. I had two agents and was signed with Robert Shaw to do his bass solos in his Russian tour. And uh, I had written all my life. Performing was just never that me. Mm -hmm. Creating was me, not interpreting. So is is Butler a good place to hunker down? Butler had a job opening, mm-hmm. and I applied, and they snatched me up. And if anyone doesn't know this, uh, Butler is known as the Ivy League of the Midwest. It's in a beautiful residential section of Indianapolis. It's an absolutely gorgeous campus. We have 30 acres of just woods and the facilities there. We have three different uh, performing complex. I'm not trying to push Butler, (laughs) but Butler was very... They'll be getting a bill after this, don't worry. Well, Butler was very good to me uh, because uh, uh, they began some 40 years ago to let me teach all my classes on Tuesday and Thursday so I could travel and write on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Okay. So I have been offered other positions during my career uh, that had a much better ring than Butler University, but now Butler has a ring because not of their music department, which is wonderful, but because, of course, their basketball team. So we have been put on the map, of course, by athletics because we have been in the top four twice in the last five years, and we're in the finals for two consecutive years. Well, that's not too bad. I I can't tell you anything about basketball, but... Well, we're not talking a thing about music, are we? I guess we're not. But but I'll tell you, I mean, if that is something that will definitely draw people to the campus, and you'll make it more talent that way, Oh, it has. It's just like giving... Really, it's like giving a campus... A hundred million dollars of free advertisement. Right, exactly. When you get on the national stage, uh, people who knock athletics, uh, they do not know what it pulls, particularly in a private school, Mm -hmm. because it brings in male students. Oh, that's true. It's, It's a great draw. That's true. That's true. Now, you happen to be, so you're in Indianapolis, you happen to be not too far 
from uh, my dear friend Joseph Flummerfeld. Oh, in fact, he is there. He took up residence in Indianapolis. Indianapolis, in the last 20 years, it used to be known as Indian No Place. And it has, the arts community there is wonderful. We have two professional theaters. We have two professional ballets. The Indianapolis Symphony is in the top 20 symphonies in the country. And it has a strong artistic community. Our children's museum is number one in the world. And we have a wonderful museum. We have wonderful performances. And, of course, we have the Indianapolis Colts. And we have the Indianapolis Pacers. Mm -hmm. And we're known, our reputation, as being the amateur capital of sports. Huh. So it is a place. Wow, wonderful. Well, let's get back to your career a little bit here. Now, Jeff Wall of Choir Nation, he asks, who are some influential composers that you admire or try to emulate in process, both from history and maybe from modernity? I was brought up, naturally, with a British Empire background. I studied English poetry and the English poets. I will have arguments with this. Are the greatest writers of the Romantic era. Well, you start with Chaucer, who was certainly not Romantic. You follow with Shakespeare, and then you have Keats, Shelley, Byron. I, you can go on and on. But the English have always set their language so divine. Their melodies are long and flowing. Their melodies and the English music is much like they speak. Mm -hmm. As you probably know, you could listen to an Englishman or an Irishman read a phone book and be, <laughs> and be captivated. True. And when they take this poetry and they take their language and they emphasize the text. They put a frame around the text. And so the composers of English music, starting with Purcell, moving on all the way to Benjamin Britten, with Roger Quilter, Ireland, Warlock, oh, I'm leaving out a hundred right now, uh, they just have a voice that spoke to me. Their melodies are long phrases. I love German music, but German music is more or less motivic. Beethoven, Mozart, but English melodies, they flow. It's, that's a really good point. I never oh. thought about it like that, but that's a really great point. So let me ask you, I, I want to go back and talk about your, you had a solo singing career. You said, you said Russia, Russian music tour with Robert I did. Shaw. So were you, a, were you a, a low bass? I was, but I started out at nine years of age as a boy soprano. 
and I was hired for $2 a week. I thought I had gone to heaven <laughs> for joining the soprano section in our local Presbyterian church. I was a paid soloist at two, and I sang the Messiah soprano solos when I was 12. And three years later, when I was 15, I sang the bass solos. A puberty is something else, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> I lost all my high C's. But, <laughs> but regardless, no, I sang all my life. In fact, uh, all my scholarships were on my singing. I have had the opportunity to sing with and be personal friends with some of the greatest. As I mentioned before, Leontine Price was from my home a town. She just turned 90. But Beverly Sills was a friend of mine. Norman Tragel, the great bass from uh, New Orleans. Uh, Eleanor Stever, oh, I, I, I could go on and on. I had the rare opportunity to always be surrounded by these great people. And I think anything, I what I am today by my magic environment. I stole it from them every chance I could get. <laughs> and I wouldn't mind stepping in their shadow and being a part of them at every opportunity. What, what role did those relationships play in, in your career? Well, I sang uh, leading roles in over 32 operas. I did my doctorate at I, uh, Indiana University, which is known for their opera department. I did 14 different operas there. So when did the composition thing really start picking no, up for it, you? It was always there. Is that the same time? I wrote compositions for all the singers at LSU to perform on their recitals. I wrote my music at IU. In fact, on one of my doctoral recitals, I sang a group of my songs. You might say singing was my day job, so I could afford to write. But I got at a point when I say I want to write, and at 29, I says, I'm going to write, and singing is going to be my advocation from now on. And I left Agents and Robert Shaw and came to Butler University. How did Robert Shaw feel about that? Uh, Robert Shaw was a little, he was not happy about it, but they're singers. It was his, Florence Kopfloff was his, oh, I think I mispronounced her last, was his more or less agent. She mm -hmm. was an alto in his alto section. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that woman. <laughs> what a voice. But she was more or less of his uh, right-hand man. Okay. And I remember the... Oh, this is probably too personal, but I don't care. Uh, <laughs> She came to me when I told her that I was just, I was giving up. Uh -huh. I was going to do something else. And she came to me and she says, tell me, Jim, 
she says, has one of the people in our choir been hitting on you? And I says, oh, no. She thought I was a young kid and that, and if I must say, I was pretty hot. <laughs> and, and, and she thought that I was a little southern boy coming through Indiana. She thought that I was deserting them. Because, and I, so uh, I don't know. Are you going to air this stuff? Yeah, of course. Oh. Of course. <laughs> All right. If this it is works great. For, if it works for you. This is good tape, Dr. Mulholland. This is great. Okay, so, so wow. Okay, so w- what was it like to work with Robert Shaw? Now, I heard he was like a real tough guy. Like, he, he had tantrums. He was just as bad as they come. But he was but, also brilliant. Oh, oh my was, gosh. He was also wonderful. The thing about this guy, he was so versatile. He made his name as a choral director and really ended up his career with one of the finer orchestras in the country, the Atlanta Symphony. Uh, the man was, he was, as, besides Leonard Bernstein and Aaron Copeland, Robert Shaw was Mr. Music America. Hmm. And Bernstein and uh, Copeland died in uh, 90. And then there was, as far as I'm concerned, there was left Shaw. And we have not gotten over the loss of those three giants in our community yet. Oh, and by the way, eat your heart out. I brought Bernstein and Copeland to Butler University. They, they came for uh, residence? They certainly did. Wow. Right. And we have next week the great soprano singing on our stage, uh, Deborah Voigt. Oh, Deborah Voigt. Uh, oh, she yeah. is singing in our... F- well, no... Oh, gee, I've been away so long. <laughs> it was last week, and, <laughs> I, and I missed it. Oh, well. And she and Renee Fleming has been there. To, and Renee is opening our Indianapolis Symphony concert season this year on her retirement year. And Renee Fleming to me is, she is a successor of Leontine Price. hmm so who do you think who do you think is filling the shoes, or who do you think will fill the shoes of the great Aaron Copeland and Robert Shaw? Uh, you know, some shoes were made to fit only one person, and they will never be filled. But eventually, we all come full circle, and someone else comes up through the ranks. And I'm sure we have right now as we speak eight or ten or maybe a hundred composers, conductors who are coming up. In fact, we have one right here as we speak. John Flattery I met 15 years ago, and I says, ah, this is the future. And so I have... uh, 
hung around him as much as possible, mainly because I'm in love with his wife, but I also give him just a little credit. But he is, he is dynamite. And this, the energy this man, he's worn me out this week. Oh, I bet he has. I've had so many interviews and speeches. He's drugged me all over town to every high school, anywhere around. I, I almost feel like a musical whore. It's been, <laughs> Oh man, when did your you don't have a you never had a comedy career though? No, I'm Irish. Oh, so that's just natural. Well, no, it's just all ask, natural. Don't ask me a question if you don't want the answer. <laughs> well, John, yes, John. I've had the the pleasure of having my students work with John, oh. and and he he is a he absolute is ball of energy. He is tireless, and he has an ear. That you know, a conductor or musician has to be able to hear, and then they have to reach through that proscenium between what they hear and what the singers are singing and bring them home to their hearing. Mm -hmm. And John has that perception, all the students, anyone around him, just they want to make themselves better for John. And this this is a beautiful uh, sensation. I think Jack Nicholson, one of his lines in a movie he won an Academy Award for, he says, you make me want to be a better person. And that is the mark of a great conductor. Yes, Wow, John. John, you're gonna get. You're getting a lot. Of, I think John's gonna be doing some all states after this, I, this interview. Uh, he's already got quite a few, but uh, good. Uh, I'm doing this to get in good graces with his wife. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you're honest about it. At least you're honest about it. Well, let's finish up this interview with a little bit about text because I am a text guy. I start with text, and I'm just trying to convert the the choir world to starting with text. And whenever they approach a new piece with their choir, that they should that they should be looking first at the text. And I see you're 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 uh, I see you're moving around. You're cringing. Why is that? Text still touches me deeper than music. The spoken word. Heinrich Heine said, "When when words can express no more, music." begins Mm -hmm. but some people can take words and they take you all the way there and some of the great minds before you they leave as far as i'm concerned text for everyone to build their own personality on Mm -hmm. and when you're working with music and can take a text A lot of texts lay there in the background. It's like going into a museum of paintings, and the museum is poorly lit. You don't see the... But as far as I'm concerned, music lifts these texts and gives them light. It gives them a sixth sense of beauty, and it magnifies certain words. It takes certain phrases 
that you've never completely understand. And when they're put into music, it's, you know, the, the dual art form of music and words, it's the greatest art form there is. So how do you think we as choral directors approaching a new piece should, should uh, treat text? Uh, most, of them, most of you are disgusting. <laughs> oh, good. No, no. Give it to I, us, I, please. I, I go to rehearsals, and I will hear a rehearsal. 45 minutes is spent on blend. It's spent on intonation. It's spent on... Pers- and maybe 10 minutes, 5 minutes, or not at all, I will hear someone say something about the text, the scansion of the text, who wrote it, why they wrote it, and how this composer has put in this beautiful onomatopoeia. Mm-hmm. Most cold directors don't know what it is, and let alone they could not spell it. O-N-O-M-A-T-O-P-O-E-I-A. Oh, listen to this, pilgrims. <laughs> <laughs> and that they don't know what a sasura is. Mm-hmm. Uh, most choral directors, they say, I have studied with Robert Shaw. I have gone to a clinic with this. T- and I ask them, and exactly when was the last time you read poetry? Their only training in poetry is two years of C in English literature in college. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And they are yeah, it dealing tends to, text with tends to be an afterthought for a lot of people, unfortunately. Oh. And, and for the composer, it's the first thing. It is the first, and it's always someone else's art that you are few fooling with. I mean, God, most literary poets, I think, would turn over in their grave if they realized someone had set that maybe mine uh, had set their music let al- the text let along the way they have been set mm-hmm. now you know you get a lot of credibility Mulholland Shakespeare Mulholland Keats right Mulholland. <laughs> but we have to treat it tenderly you have to read it right students have to see the love and importance of these words to be able to sing them. Music is just the equation that is bringing out these beautiful... I've cried. I went to see Florence Foster Foster Jenkins Mm -hmm. with Meryl Streep. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Around a month ago. Yep. This singer who paid to sing. She sounded awful, but she had a recital in Carnegie Hall, and it was blasted by a writer, mm-hmm. and it broke her heart. She died shortly after. Right, because she put, she, she put all of everything she had into that. Oh, yeah. and she gave them so much money that they were always sucking up to her. That was a really wonderful movie oh. because, because at, at, you, know, you wanted to laugh, at how bad she sang, oh, but, yes. but you also oh, realize there's a human in there, well, too. But, that, but that's the beauty of art anyway. Mm-hmm. 
a cross between passion and joy, but the line that she said at the end of it, they could say that I couldn't sing, but they couldn't say that I didn't sing. Oh. <laughs> it breaks my heart. Is, is that beautiful? Oh, that is beautiful. And what a more beautiful way to say I love you than to say, you had me at hello. <laughs> oh. So words, they, they're our communication. They are what we live by. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, most people take them completely for granted. And a musician, a composer, and a choral director should emphasize the text, and if every word is not understood, it is not because they're singing in a bad hall. It's not because they're having a bad day. It's not because their first soprano is sick. It's because they're not pronouncing and doing the correct diction, and it's your fault. It's true. And bring them to me, and I will tell them. <laughs> I bet you will. I I, I really think... Um, um, you know, I wanted to just to sort of end this this interview with um, maybe just the way you think choristers should see text and how they should be introduced to it for the first time of a, a new piece. If if you if we hand out your most recent piece or a piece maybe that has a, a you know um, any piece any piece that has a long poem, what do, what do we do as a choral director? Should we show them? In, a, in its original form. I always think maybe they should see it in the original form uh, that's not in the, in, the, in the musical manuscript. It could, but you should explain the text to them when it was written, mm-hmm. why it was written, if you know that. Mm-hmm. But the first thing... We, we should, should know have, that, shouldn't we? Absolutely. So to those... know that Edna St. Vincent Millay, when she was married, was sleeping with a young man 20 years younger than she was that she met at a university and realizing she was getting older and she wrote, what lips my lips have kissed and where and why I have forgotten. And she ends it with, thus in the winter stands the lonely tree nor knows what birds have vanished one by one, yet knows its boughs more silent than before. I cannot say what loves have come and gone. I only know that summer sang in me a little while that in me sings no more. And, and you can't take that out of context. No, mm-hmm. and a right. student at every rehearsal before a different student, before you sing a song, should stand in front of a choir and recite the text. And then you put the light to it. Then you frame it with the music. And uh, Professor Mohan, I think that's a, a wonderful way to wrap up this episode. 
Uh, I thank you so much. I know Choir Nation thanks you. Um, and again, thank you to John Flannery here at New Mexico State University. And I'm looking forward to, in uh, about 15 minutes, to watching a concert of your work. And I will have my Rolades ready uh, uh, for intermission. <laughs> You can have a full concert of Bach without getting bored. <laughs> but, yes, and if there's one place in this concert that you do not understand the text, see me after, and I will have the Irish Mafia at John's door. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Well, I'll keep that in my back pocket in case John ever makes me mad. So. <laughs> Wonderful. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for this wonderful interview. My pleasure, always. Well, there you have it. Let's give a shout-out to MyMusicFolders.com and SightReadingFactory.com for sponsoring today's episode. Of course, use the promo code NINJA at either of those two websites, and you will receive special bonuses just for being a listener of this podcast. If you'd like to support what we do at Choir Ninja, head on over to patreon.com forward slash Choir Ninja. Again, that's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Choir Ninja. If only 5% of our listenership gave on patreon.com on a regular basis, set up that one-time recurring less than a Starbucks payment on a monthly basis, then we'd be able to dedicate our full-time energy to Choir Ninja. So think about that. If you love what we're doing, we can do it even better with your help. And with that, have a wonderful day, and we'll see you next Tuesday with probably the most inspiring music education advocacy interview I've ever done. Next Tuesday with Justin Kathmull. Quiet Ninja Show. Wa-bung-bung. Bung.